something new oh yeah gotta put the feet up <laughs> this is this is the epitome of lazy podcasting hey we are both wearing pants that's a good point it's hardly an epi- and i'm wearing a bra that is way too far much. from the epitome way too much clothing for uh podcasting it's for podcasts on the no pants network yeah the no pants podcast network we're liars. We are rarely unclothed. <laughs> it's a shame. And I'm going to let out a secret that you may not want to hear, but we edit the podcast. You're not recording, are you? Oh, yeah, we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we're recording. My fingernails are long. And by fingernails, I mean toenails. Yeah, don't put that in the podcast. Why? <laughs> They're not that long. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. This is episode 55. We're getting so many episodes in, I'm having a hard time keeping track of them. I, I have no idea. I just trust you to know where we're at. We're on episode 76, 13, I don't know. Here's what I do know. We are covering chapter 8 and chapter 9 of The Republic of Thieves by Scott Lynch, a part of the Gentleman Bastard series. That's right. And on our next book club, we will be finishing the book. Woohoo! That'll be great. We will also be announcing our next series. That is correct. And uh, other plans for the future. So tune in. Yes, for sure. A little heads up. We probably will be taking a break between this series and the next one. Just a couple of weeks. We'll probably have a few things in there. We'll, We'll iron out the details of that later. Our spoiler policy is that Liz has read these books several times. She knows how it's gonna end, but I don't. I have never read this, so this is my first time. So we will not spoil anything past Chapter 9, or the interlude that follows Chapter 9, in The Republic of Thieves. Nothing from Chapter 10 or beyond. It's a good ending on this book. I'm really excited. I'll tell you one thing. Scott Lynch makes it very difficult to predict his books. He is very, very good at... at even when he sets something up of, of giving you surprises. I have to tell this story without getting too much into what's going to be the middle of the section we're, that we're discussing. I was in the kitchen the other day making dinner and I just heard Chad yell, <laughs> she's his mother. <laughs> and I just stood there and I waited for it. And like a few seconds later, he went, she's not his mother. <laughs> <laughs> that. That did, in fact, happen, yes. Very satisfying moment. <laughs> I'm sure that was very entertaining for you. <laughs> I have been waiting for you all through Red Seas under Red Skies. I've been just waiting to get to that part. It's a good part. It is a good part. It is a good part. I have questions and feelings. 
Well, let's get into it. Let's. So chapter eight is called The Five-Year Game, Infinite Variation. Let me tell you what, going back through and looking through this again, man, this chapter and the next interlude are freaking long. Very long. Man, they are long. This you was a long section to read. Yeah. yeah, a lot of stuff does happen. Got a lot of notes. So in this chapter, we start with Locke and Jean have just escaped from Sabatha's trap, and they are stumbling back into Carthane. Yeah, covered in mud, no clothes. No weapons, no nothing. Bankroll short. Haven't showered in weeks. You got nothing. <laughs> on the road. And Locke decides he wants to barge right in on Sabatha. He just wants to go straight there. And uh, Jean says, well, shit, it's not like I've done anything especially smart in months. Why start now? You know, why not? I mean, strike now, right? So they also find that the kingdom of the Marrows has actually began its civil war. And Emberlane succeeded. And if you remember back in book one. I do. This was the basis of the scam they were running. It was. Telling these nobles that Emberlane was going to um, secede from this kingdom of the Marrows. And that was the basis of their scam. So now it's actually happened. So they. Um, he wasn't lying. They they barge into Sabbath's lair, and it's a it's kind of a glorious scene where they just describe the doors bursting, being burst open by a henchman that's being thrown through, and the the two gentlemen bastards kind of stride through after him, and uh, they they get Vordratha, Sabbath's major domo, and they grab him by his balls. They get him by right in the bulldozy. <laughs> I've got you by the big hairy. Got him by the bulladazi. And uh, managed in that way having those hostages to get in to see Sabatha. And basically it goes like this. God damn it, Sabatha. <laughs> what the hell? And Sabatha's basically like, it was for your own good. It's like, I'm standing in front of you with a grown man's <laughs> balls in my hand. <laughs> I've come to you. And all I ask for is love and hand sanitizer. <laughs> so by by bursting in and basically Locke um, is, is kind of like, look, I, I almost died. I'm done effing around. You know how I feel. You know, tell me right now that you don't like me and, I, and I'll be done. And Sabatha, of course, she's all conflicted. She can't tell him that. So that he, he asked her to have dinner. He she's calls a, her his his favorite complication. She's a real Samantha. Sex in the City reference. Oh. Wow, you make Seth, Sex in the City references. I, like, I, just, I, I, of, I never watched that show. One of us has to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad that you're picking up the slack there. <laughs> That's kind of cool. I actually have no idea if he's a Samantha. I just know Samantha's a character. I have nothing. I don't know anything about her. <laughs> So on the way back, uh, Patience appears in their carriage and tells Locke he needs to win, not woo. Well, I'm on Patience' side here. Right. Because the one thing you have after that whole thing with the boat and getting captured is you do have the advantage of being able to sort of take the initiative back. You know, yes... We know that Sabbath is going to have people looking out and that Sabbath realizes that putting them on that boat was not foolproof. 
you know, because it's Lock, it's fucking Lock Lamora, right? So, so we get that, but they could have elected to find a way to sneak in, make some monumental effort while her attention was drawn away looking somewhere else. But instead, you know, he's got to he's got to walk up to the inn, you know, put his boombox over his shoulder, you know, and play Peter Gabriel outside of her goddamn window, right? Rather than focus on the task at hand. Now, to be fair, I understand why he's not particularly invested in what the Bonds Magi want him to do. You know, it, it all just seems like a giant fucking distraction. It does. And Jean is on Locke's side here. You know, from where he was before being taken hostage, it's kind of a shift because he was all business and let's just not get involved yeah. here. But at this point, he says, you know what? Patients can go lick scorpions in hell. That's right. You sort out what you need to sort out. Yeah. Because frankly, he doesn't want to deal with lovelorn Locke anymore. No. Because he's... He's a mopey sad sack. Indeed. Although having a dinner date with Sabbatha set up seems to sort of light a fire under Locke and they go out from there and they start doing all sorts of uh, elections business and skullduggery. They uh, they visit a gambling master and threaten his balls if he doesn't call <laughs> in a bunch of debts. Listen. That would benefit them. It wouldn't be the first time today <laughs> I've had a grown man's balls in my hand. <laughs> I got all the bulladazis. Like I got a bowl of bulladazis. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> I has to take a dark turn, didn't it? <laughs> so Locke and it's really terrifying. Sabatha have a date. Yeah, they do. You don't look like you enjoyed that scene. Oh no, no, it was it was fine. So I forgot how many dates they have. They have three dates. Three dates, and the third date is going like you think a third date's going to go, but. You know, then something happens. We're not going to get to that. So the first date. So this is interesting because the first time I read this book, I did not like Sabatha. Did not like her. And I don't know if part of that was, well, definitely it's partly because I read this book quickly and there were things I didn't pick up. And one of those things was in this scene. So this restaurant that they go to is basically a tower. It has these cages that you can, you dine in a cage. It gets hoisted up the outside of this tower and you sit and look over the city. That sounds horrifying, by the way. It really does. (laughs) It sounds completely awful. You know, they tell you when you get old that you're going to lose your eyesight. They tell you that you're going to lose your hearing. You might even lose your hair. You know what they don't tell you? somehow you're going to pick up phobias that you didn't have in your 20s. It's true. You know what else they don't tell you? What else do they not tell you? You can't eat Taco Bell anymore. (laughs) I am telling you, after 30, it is a a steep slope towards not being able to eat Taco Bell without dire consequences. (laughs) Just warning all you young'uns out there. (laughs) After 40, don't even try it. Nobody in 40... It can eat at Taco Bell. It can't be done. Not without consequences. <laughs> oh, we went off the path. So anyway, they have this this date and they, they start off talking business. They do uh, lay out that they're going to agree not to kidnap 
each other anymore. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's kind of important. And then at the end of the date, after building up and flirting, Sabatha reveals that she's got a, a rope already and a repelling set basically and she repels out of the cage in this very dramatic with her skirts fluttering and Locke's like damn girl and mm. um and I that just pissed me off I was like what like it, it what it just seemed so unnecessarily showy and like she's obviously playing with him however reading it again this time I had missed that what she said was I set this up just in case you tried anything. Yeah. 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 And I was like, oh, that for me, that just crazy how that made all the difference. I can see how Sabbatha, particularly in reading through it quickly, can really come off poorly. But reading through it more slowly, I pick up on so much more of her motivations. And I, I really love this character this time through. So yeah. that's kind of interesting. And this is one of those little scenes that I, I read completely differently this time, seeing it as, okay, you know, she put this whole rope set here as a means of escape in case Locke tried anything, because that's what she expects. Well, yeah. You know, and, and she set this entire dinner up to be completely within her control. And then we learn later uh, why she has that need to be in control of her surroundings at all times, why she needs to be feel like she's two steps ahead of everyone around her. Because she's hunted. Indeed. As one of the great white beasts. <laughs> so rare sighting of the ginger. So after dinner, the game is afoot. They jump back into, is this where she talks to him about the absolute horror story? That is what they do. No, it's redheads. We'll, oh, okay. we'll get to that. Oh, okay. All no, right. we're going to get to that. So Locke and John go through at this point, and they just attempt to salvage the the sinking ship that is their election campaign. One of the things that turns into a pretty funny shtick later is that Sabatha has these guys on all the rooftops. Oh yeah, <laughs> around and they're spying on on Justin's, which is their home base. And so John goes up and he roughs them up. He's mm -hmm. like, get out, tell your friends not to come back. You know, he ties the one guy up and beat, he just beats him up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, they figure, okay, they're safe from spies now. Locke also dumps a load of stinky alchemical crap on her doorstep and <laughs> manages to escape. He uh, and also dumps snakes down her chimneys. Yeah, up. yeah. Um, right in the evening that she's supposed to have an important price. So they are, they yep. are getting, they're not getting their butts completely handed to them. They're giving it back a little bit. You know what would be a really funny, funny practical joke to pull on somebody? It would be like, you take the toilet, right? And you saran wrap it real tight so nobody can tell, right? And right when they sit down to go pee, you dump a bucket of scorpions on them. That would be hilarious. <laughs> Terrible. That would just be so funny. <laughs> well, they were non-venomous snakes. <laughs> Okay, all right. Well, it's like their whole political strategy at this point is like Madhouse. It, or or I'm sorry, like it's, Animal House. It's exactly it's what like, it's like. It's like Porky's. It's, it's exactly what like, it's right? like. Right? It's it's like yeah. an 80s like teen sex comedy romp. It's like we're we're going to fill the pool full of jello. <laughs> we're we're going to dump 4,000 packets of strawberry jello <laughs> in their swimming pool. 
That's exactly what it's like it's, up to this point. You know. So it's so funny. I mean, they do a couple things later that it's, but it, it, they're not really playing the game to win. Right. And so here we see like, like Sabatha's style of operating, which is with meticulous and careful planning versus Locke, who tends to kind of just go with the flow in situations he is not served as well. No. You know, and every step that he has, Sabatha has a countermeasure in place. You know, for instance, when uh, Jean goes up and beats up her spies, they, a short time later, they see more spies up there and Jean goes up to do the same thing again and she has positioned these old women on the rooftops to spy on them and and uh they they say to jean yep i'm spying on you what are you gonna do are you gonna break my arm (laughs) and he's like uh no of course not (laughs) and they're like okay see you later then (laughs) they're all there with their parasols and their tea and they're just we're just gonna sit here and spy on you yeah there's not really much that john is going to do about that so it's it's well i feel like i feel like Locke's sort of like special sauce is that when things like when things are really down when it's like absolute crunch time he's like the ultimate clutch performer but when the stakes aren't really that serious he's wearing a sweatshirt that says college on it yeah like he's just not he, this just isn't that serious to him I would agree, and especially with the distraction of Sabatha, and obviously that is his his main focus right now, and everything he does with the election is sort of just to keep the Bonds Magi off his back, and also to not look like a total idiot in front of her. Yeah. And so they go on a, another date, and we'll just talk about like the second and third dates, because the development of this relationship is interesting. You know, they start with Sabatha having all of these walls up. And Locke just saying, okay, well, tell me to go away, but she can't. Yeah. And then she starts opening up on the second date and talking about her, more about her reasons why she feels reluctant and her feelings about their childhood. And it's interesting because they have very different perspectives. You know, we've seen stories of their childhood, not really through Locke's eyes, but well, sort well, of through Locke's yeah, eyes. Yeah, because it... We've talked about this before, and perspective in a in a book is always something that's really important to me. I always pay attention to it, and this is this very sort of detached third person where you're not really in anybody's head. I mean, you're a little bit in their head, but for the most part, it's more of like a detached view. But it's also always, it's sort of the editorial choices, right, of like, what are you choosing to cover? Like, well, we're always covering stories that relate to Locke 90% of the time, if not Locke, Jean. Right. And so we don't see as much, and Sabatha hasn't even been in most of the stories we've seen so far. So she has a very different perspective on their childhood and the way she sees it. Chains did them a disservice by making them a family. She says roots are not for criminals and he bred a, a soft and a tender heart and a love for each other that ended up being a liability. Locke sees it a different way. And this is just such a f- interesting fundamental difference that they have that uh, Sabatha 
through the same experiences, learned how to protect herself and cut herself off even from her own family. Well, and it, you can see it play out in the way that they handle the game. And I don't think it's a secret or I don't think it's an accident that her experience as the only female of the group was much more of an isolated experience than the sausage party that was the twins and Locke and John. Right. And it's led to her having this belief that a conscience is a dead weight to a thief. And it's interesting because we saw chains trying to impart to his kids was the importance of fellowship among thieves and the importance of being thieves as the gods intended and the spiritual aspect. So it's interesting because we've discussed in the past why Locke was made a priest of the unnamed 13th and why Sabbath was not. Yeah. And we see the difference in the two right now. And we talked about how, you know, when Locke was dangling off a cliff and this fellow thief was trying to kill him, Locke saved his life. And that's not something that Sabbath would have done. No, I think we also get a sense of why Sabatha struggles with the concept of this relationship, you know, because one, she doesn't want to be bound by what chains, she doesn't want to be bound by those childhood things, and she doesn't want to be bound to anybody. She sees herself like Amandine, queen of the thieves. That is her primary focus. And so a relationship with, Locke is an albatross. It's not It's not helping her reach her goal at all. So in her agency, this is not a positive thing. So right, we, and we, we see that what Sabatha wants more than anything else is, is agency and control over her own life. Yeah. And we learn in the next, I believe in the next interlude or the one after, why that is. And and what was kind of a formative crisis in her childhood. So I have to ask you, after kind of going through these two dates, and we'll get to what happens at the end of the third date, but we kind of talked about the progression of their conversations and how, where their relationship is going. By the end of it, Locke has kind of worn her down. You know, Sabatha is like, she's like the girl who breaks up with her high school sweetheart because she doesn't want to marry the the only guy she's ever loved. And she goes off to college and then, you know, she turns 21 and the high school sweetheart comes back into her life and she's trying to figure out, oh, do, am I going back to this guy? Like, really? It's like Reese Witherspoon in that movie where she leaves Georgia. and That is exactly what it's like. It's Sweet Home sweet Alabama. Home Alabama. <laughs> in a fantasy world. It's exa- it's with exa- witches. Huh? With what? With witches. It's exactly what it's like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some foreign race that left behind crazy artifacts. But one of the things that she loves about Locke is that is his ability to just say, F it. F it all. Who cares? We want what we want. Why does it matter? And he finally is able to wear her down and get in, start getting in a good makeout sesh. And that's what you need to successfully woo a woman. Just, just wear them down. <laughs> uh, so, I th- by the way, that's not true. It's not true. 
but I'm not saying have it. We, have we talked about my hatred of that song Friends on the show yet? Yeah, we okay. talked about it. All right. Sorry, guys. I'm not going <laughs> to. I just always think about that. But so I have to ask you, before we get into the interruption of the third date, do you still think that Locke is a toxic nice guy in this scenario? Or is he instead patiently waiting for the woman he loves to overcome her own issues and get to a place where she can be in a relationship. I don't, I don't know yet. I'm kind of 50, 50 on that. I know. I mean, we definitely have more evidence to sort of bring me back into, okay. Locke is, you know, he loves who he loves and he is sort of the ultimate family man, as far as thieves go, you know, in that this is what he wants and he doesn't really want anything else. And, there's something that he says in the third date, and it's prior to the interruption, so so I'll go ahead and talk about it. When they talk about... So it happens when Sabatha asks Locke, hey, when's the last time you, you got any poonanny, right? <laughs> and, I mean, and those are the words she uses. Uh, so it's okay, I'm <laughs> quoting. And uh, he says, well, you know when I've only been with you. And she says, oh, okay, well... I haven't, you know, and his, you know, she asks, are you angry? And he's like, no, not really. I mean, you know, you don't belong to me and I don't, you don't owe me anything, you know? And, uh, he said, one of the advantages of getting older is that you, you get, get your head just a little bit more out of your ass and you don't have quite as, you know, uh, much of a sense of entitlement you know, as you, as you did when you were a kid. And so that to me goes a long way mm-hmm. towards leading, leading me to believe that he's not a toxic, nice guy. There are still some things I see that concern me, you know, and I still think that he feels in some way like he can do something to win and earn and therefore deserve her love and that's evidenced by what happens in chapter nine and how he reacts to some of to, to her reaction. I'm mm-hmm. being sort of cryptic, but um, so I don't I don't think it's clear, super clear cut. Interesting. So, I mean, for me, I, I land more on. Yeah, Locke is um, certainly not not an entirely healthy attachment, I would say. Yeah. I would say it borders on an obsession, um, but I wouldn't put him in the toxic nice guy category. I don't know that I me, would either. Yeah, for me, a toxic nice guy is a guy who, um, when he is rejected, does not accept that rejection and not in a nice way, but gets very ugly and really who sees his nice behavior as a means of getting something. See, I sort of define it a little bit differently, although I think the way you're defining it is the way most people would define it. I look at it, and maybe this is because I relate it back to my own experiences of being, you know, a teen and a 20-something. I look at it as more of like the guy who is actually legitimately a nice guy, but does not realize as a part of that the sort of toxicity that he's creating, you know, the sort of dysfunction 
that he has in his own life. So it's more of, it's more of, uh, it's less of a deliberate thing. You know, like to me, the guy who acts nice and expects something in return isn't a toxic nice guy. He's just an asshole. To me, the toxic nice guy is the guy who is legitimately at least believes and is trying to be a nice guy, but creates these toxic situations and ends up with a sense of entitlement and all these things out of it, not with the intention of, you know, or unintentionally, I should say. Well, and I think the the sense of entitlement is the the core Agreed. of both of our definitions. And yeah. I don't know that I see that in Locke. I definitely see a persistence and he's not going to go away unless Sabbatha tells him to. And he can sense that part of her wants to be with him as well. So he's not going to be afraid to go on, put it out there that he, he still wants to be with her and he's going to do everything he can. But at the same time, I think that if Sabbatha was to say, dude, I'm really not interested he would leave. He would pick up his acoustic guitar and, you know, he would he would record some videos for VH1. <laughs> you know, I ain't made up my mind yet. Well, we'll come back to that later, I'm mm. sure. So the interlude, so they're Locke and Sabatha, right as things are getting hot and heavy, they are interrupted by patients. She appears on the balcony and she yeah. says... Well, I have I have one qualm. Okay. Right. So so skinny ass Locke weighs 130 pounds. Man, you know they start to make out. He picks her up and puts her on the table, and I'm like, "You're skinny ass with your broke army picking nobody up." You know what? I'm sure she gave him a little hop. She would have had. He to probably have. didn't even notice. <laughs> His skinny ass ain't picking nobody up. Gonna bolster his ego. She's gonna jump up on that counter a little bit. <laughs> well, good. She good. hoisted herself with her arms. Good for them. <laughs> good for them. Sabbath has been doing a lot of dips. <laughs> she's got them guns. You know she's buff. I'm sure she is. Yeah. She's like Emily Blunt in um. What was that movie she did with Tom Cruise? She was buff in that movie. I don't know. I don't watch a lot of Tom Cruise movies. I got you feelings. know who I you know who I figured out is my head canon Jean Tannen. Who's that? Fat Jason Statham. When was Jason Statham ever fat? Well, he hasn't been yet, but he will be when he plays Jean Tannen. We're gonna feed him <laughs> a lot of cheesesteaks, <laughs> and he'll be perfect. Isn't Jason Statham like five foot five? It doesn't matter. We'll give him lifts too. Okay, lifts and right. cheese steaks. You got a thing for the stath. For the what? The stath. I dig him. Yeah. You he, got a and thing he's for got the that. Jean Tannen needs to have an air of danger. Like he's going to kill you. Like people look at Jean Tannen and they go, oh, that guy could kill me. He's going to get in a horse and buggy and have a, like a uh, high speed horse and buggy chase yeah, through a yeah. city. <laughs> Like in the transporter. <laughs> totally. He's going to be like, you know. <laughs> On two wheels. He's, he's drifting, you know, around corners. <laughs> totally. That's my head cannon, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay. I mean, hey, you know. It's... So the interlude that comes up next is called Happenings in Bedchambers. And like I think many listeners and we ourselves predicted, or you yourself predicted, you know, at, we had left off with Buladazi overhearing Sabatha and Locke having an intimate conversation and they he confronts Locke about it and Locke says hey man it was just an improv 
I couldn't say no. I had to say and. That's the way the game is played. <laughs> so they're able to get out of that trouble pretty quickly and, you know, kind of expectedly. But it sets up this dynamic that continues through the interlude of Buladazi hovering around the company. So oh, Locke and Sabatha yeah. are sort of finally getting to the point where they're ready to move forward in their relationship. She's admitted she's got some feelings. She's not sure how she feels about those feelings. But Buladazi becomes a complication. He is up in this girl's grill. Oh, my God. He wants some of it, and they can't ever find time to be alone because he is always there. Okay, now this is the definition of a toxic nice guy. Yes. No, it's, it's not. This is the definition of a rapist. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he literally is a rapist. I, I mean, I think we need to... But for me, when I when I think of... Put a little bit of a boundary between those two. You know, there's... there's okay, Let's so, not make Ed Sheeran as bad as a rapist. Okay, but Ed Sheeran is not a toxic nice yes, guy. Yes, he is. No, he's... He absolutely is. Okay, so we need to straighten this out right here, okay? <laughs> There's a difference between nice guy who's a little codependent and the toxic nice guy, okay? The toxic nice guy only acts nice because it makes him feel better about himself. Look how different I am from all these other guys. Why do girls only like jerks? Girls only like assholes. I'm a nice guy and I can't get any girls. Probably you're a little bit of an asshole, too. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You know, a codependent nice guy might have his issues, but actually cares about people and is nice to them because he cares about them. But, the, you know, putting giving someone a toxic moniker means that they are not actually nice to people because they want to be. Unless you're the toxic Avenger. Yes. In which case... You get your own category. Go on. <laughs> Carry on. Go on, brother. So no, Ed Sheeran is not a toxic nice guy. He's maybe a codependent nice guy. Okay, fine. Look, it's not like I know the guy. <laughs> I know you, Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I've seen your kind. <laughs> Don't come around here with your cheap-ass Martin guitar. <laughs> I don't want to hear Are it. Are we nice to any celebrities no. on this podcast? No. <laughs> Not at all. Well, listen. Plotting to give Jason Statham diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't feel like we have a lot to risk. <laughs> you know? And everything to gain. It's true. <laughs> so Listen, if we can either get Jason Statham to come onto the podcast. I'll buy you a cheesesteak. Or, yeah, I mean, <laughs> great. We couldn't have a guest on the podcast anyway, because I can't figure out how to, how to get a third microphone. <laughs> Listen, if Jason Statham reaches out, or Ed Sheeran would like to come on and defend themselves... Or give dieting advice. <laughs> I will figure out how to get the damn third microphone to work. <laughs> we have the microphone. We just can't. Oh, that's a peek behind the curtain there, baby. <laughs> Who? We got off track. All right. So 
Buladazi is being a real Buladazi, basically. And Locke and Sabatha, in the midst of also trying to prepare for this play, try to snatch moments here and there where they can continue to talk about where their relationship is going. And in this process is when we learn why Sabatha is so sensitive about her hair color. And it's straight out of like, it's straight out of like a horror novel. It's freaking awful. So, it's, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't even want to talk about it. It's horrifying. At the end of the last interlude, when Locke told Sabatha that when he, the one time he saw her real hair color, he was struck with delight and he, and he, he just loved her so much from that very moment. She shuts him down. And we talked about that that seemed kind of an overreaction. Yeah. And Locke was pretty taken aback by it. But now we find out that redheaded girls who are virgins in this world, or at least in the country of Jerem, are thought to be a cure-all for venereal disease. Sadly, much like like virgins in some parts of the world today, are yeah. that's also a, a, yeah. a myth that's propagated and sadly mm-hmm. does happen. So she tells him and that from a very young age, she was told that if anyone ever saw that she had red hair, she would be, um, not only do they rape these girls to death, but they brutally mutilate them at the same time. Yeah, it's horrible. It's, it's described as a very horrifying process that they're put through. So that she was told from a very young age, if anyone ever sees the real color of your hair, this is what will happen to you. Yeah. And so it puts so much of what she has done in her attitudes into perspective. It, it does. And my issues with it last time were more about why Locke wouldn't know that. But it's kind of a minor point. I felt like it I felt like we were put in that situation so that when Locke got his sort of metaphorical slap in the face, we would feel it the same way. And so I felt like it was a good sort of writing device from that perspective. And I figured we would get more enlightenment on it and and we do so it's you know it's completely understandable why she would react that way and i think it's also completely understandable why Locke would be completely flabbergasted by her initial reaction to it you know and i think that's i think scott lynch did a good job of writing it in a way where we could understand both of their points of view yeah, and I, I do really like that about the way he writes this relationship, is that you can see both points of view. Yeah. And they're completely opposite, but it feels emotionally honest. Both of the characters came to their points of view and their perspectives through a process that you can see and understand. Well, yeah, and we keep comparing this relationship to Den and Quoth, and it's almost the opposite. In that, in the Dena and Quoth relationship, you cannot see both people's point of view because the way he writes it, you can only see it from one person's perspective, and they're both deliberately not telling each other the truth. And so it's maddening, that relationship. It's really, really frustrating. And this is very refreshing in comparison. Also... He does, I mean, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of female characters with 
a lot of time on screen, so to speak. A few, but the one that really gets a lot of time on screen, Sabatha, is very well written. There's a lot of female characters. They're just not major characters, you know. Um, but Sabatha, for the time that, at least in this novel that she gets on screen, very well written. I agree. I like Sabatha. She's one of my favorite females in fantasy. Yeah. I would say. So, and and what I like about Sabatha is that, you know, too, she reacts angrily. She reacts in ways that we understand, but but she also is willing to admit when she overreacts and, and is does try to at least honestly communicate what's going on. And at some point she does kind of go to Locke and be like, okay, I, I know that I overreacted, you know, and they're able to communicate through that. Yeah. Can, can we talk about the Ash bastard? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so at one point, you know, it's a comical thing and Locke and Sabbath are just about to kiss and, and they're interrupted by Alondo, one of the players who tells them that Callow and Galdo are chugging the Ash bastard. And it just cracked me up because I just remember being a teenager and some of the people I hang out, hung out with and parties I went to, if there had been an ash bastard, somebody would have chugged it. So oh. it's basically they're, they're chugging a spittoon. It's fucking horrific. <laughs> it's, uh. But we see their relation, the twins relationship grow a little bit because in the beginning of these interludes, they're in an individualistic phase. They're not getting along at all. Everything they do and say is kind of antagonistic. And once they both chug the ash bastard and are rendered unconscious, we see them when they come to start supporting each other and working together a little bit. True, true. Also, Jean gets laid. Yeah, for Jean. And you know, even though this is chronologically in the past, it happens after to us everything we experienced with Ezri. And I'm like, yeah, Jean, it's about time you you found love again. I know. And then you realize. 14 years. It was before. before. <laughs> it was actually him losing his virginity. But, uh, uh, you know. but yeah. And he gets one of the best lines where he and Janora is who is his partner and she's the seamstress. And they're talking about Calo and Galdo. And he says. She's she's bagging on him a little bit. And he says, well, they've got an endearing side. It comes out once a month when the moon is full. They're like reverse werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> so but funny. I have a question. Okay. So Jean, we know, is 16. Right. Do we know how old Janora is? She's older. But she is the niece of Madame Gloriano. Is this some sort of weird double standard we have? If it had been, you know a 20-year-old man with a 16-year-old girl, would we feel the same way? In a fantasy world, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, I, I think that probably all the gentlemen bastards at this point are, are seen as being marrying age. Um, certainly, we have Calo and Galdo at the, the brothel. Yeah. You know, for years at this point. So, I, I didn't think didn't bother me in any way. I'm just trying to be contrary. I'm just trying to pick a fight. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. You are not taking the bait. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you, yeah, what a double standard. You and your level-headedness. That cradle-robbing hussy. So let's talk about the play in this part. 
because we get a good bit of just seeing the actual play and then practicing. We do and I, such. Yeah, I feel like there are two sections that we get of the play in this interlude. We get a section where there are two thieves who are coming to pay tribute to Amadine. They each bring her separate gifts. And then we get another scene where I can't remember the characters' names, but uh, the two older characters, though, it's like the wizard and the king. Right. The wizard and the emperor are talking about their plans for uh, the main characters. Oren and Ferris. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And what they're going to kind of send them off to do. So those are the two sort of things that we get. And I just can't help but think that there's a lot of stuff hidden in here. And I also can't help but think that we're not really going to be able to see what it all means at this stage. That we're going to have to get through the end of this book and maybe even into other books before it all becomes clear. But I I wanted to try to talk about what we might be able to suss out from those parts if we have enough evidence that we think we can suss anything out. Well, did anything jump out at you? The two the two thieves and their different gifts I found, that was something I sort of wanted to explore and to try to figure out who the two thieves are. So what happens is there are two thieves who come to Amadine, one this very, very poor thief who essentially brings this, you know, trinket as a as a tribute to her. And this other thief who brings this incredibly elaborate gift that he, quote, stole, unquote, as a tribute to Amadine. But it's actually poisoned and he's out there as an assassin and they see through it. And I'm and um, I'm trying to figure out, like, is is there a parallel in the rest of the story that we can relate to these things? I'm not sure that I know what it is at this point. Uh, you could sort of you could sort of almost look at Boladazi as the guy bringing the riches and then when he is found out for his true colors is then killed. Well, that is precisely what happens. So that's a pretty direct parallel. If that's the case, who is the poor thief and what are they bringing to the table maybe the poor that's a good point the poor thief is maybe Locke and his weak ass fucking skills hey now (laughs) it was one time I'm not nobody's great on their first time no they're not but you know it's interesting because in the play Amadine says I would rather something small from someone who doesn't have anything than something nice from someone who has a lot more yeah. I mean, I really want to stick it to the poor people. I want, I want, that's what I want. That's a really good point, though. What I took from that part was that Amadine was a tough, cold bitch when someone betrays her. So after the, the assassin is uncovered, he says, okay, fine, just put the it's a poison bracelet that he gave her. Mm-hmm. And he says, just put it on me and get it over with. Cause he knows that that's what she's going to do to kill him. And she says, no, melt it down and make him drink it. 
And so that's what they do. And you're like, damn. damn. <laughs> and so we've already drawn this parallel that Amadine is who Sabatha wants to be. And we see a little bit later when Buladazi is killed that she is the one, only one, who does not make an emotional mistake in that situation. Also, that she has read through this. She she knows this play. So she knows th- this about Amadine before she, she ever wants to do the role. Still wants to do the role. Yes. So anything else from the play that jumped out at you? I mean, I saw a parallel between Oren and Locke, and we've talked about that a little bit before. Yeah. And they're kind of the existential crisis that they're both handed. Oren is the son of this emperor who is getting ready to inherit a peaceful empire. So he is basically being handed this legacy, but with given no direction for his future. Mm, he has yeah. no task to overcome. It's basically, it's like the pile of gold that chains left the gentleman bastards. Yeah, also that he he wants to strike his own, like, like he's chomping at the bit to find something unique for him to do, for his own ego's sake. Sort of. He's sort of torn between, do I just sit here and do what my father did, or do I need to go out? And he's got this best friend, Farron, who is telling him, you've got to go, you've got to go, you've got to go become your own man. And we really see that echoed in Locke's life. You know, he's made a priest, he's kind of handed this gang, and chains... gave them all this training, all this money, and never told them what to do with it. And when we first meet the gentleman bastards, they're sitting on an enormous fortune with no idea how to spend it. There's no no way to spend it. Yeah. So I definitely saw a parallel there. No, that's good. I also think it's interesting in this interlude, each of the gang at some point reflects on their role in the gang. And I think we really see them kind of solidifying back into a cohesive unit. You know, Jean, when he's talking to Janora, she says to him, you're the one that they all turn to when things go to shit, aren't they? Aren't you? And he's like, yeah, I guess I kind of am. You know, Jean is the emotional center of this group. He's the, he's the heart. He's the emotional stability. Yeah. And Kahlo and Galdo, when they're out, doing something, running an errand, they they say, where would this gang be without us to do the actual miserable footwork? Yeah. And that kind of is, you know, yeah, yeah. they're not the great planners. They're not the great fighters. They're the ones that they're like, all right, guys, we need someone to do this kind of bullshit work, but someone's got to do it. And they're the ones who do it. Yeah. So it's interesting to see everyone kind of settle into and accept their roles. And Sabatha is sort of the teeth. Yeah. You know? She's the one who has to be hard and cold and heartless at times. She's the one who can do that. She, yeah, that is a that is a good way of putting it. Um, when we see toward the end of this, we have one final confrontation where Kahlo uh, and Galdo come up with a plan for Sabatha, and she drugs Buladazi and sneaks Locke off to this closet, and they finally do it. And ew, Buladazi is gross. Okay, we oh get a little glimpse yeah, into his brain. We Yeah, we go pretty deeply into his head. It's one of the most inside of a character's head experiences in any of the Gentleman Bastards. It's, you know, this whole little section 
where you're really seeing it from his perspective and all his internal dialogue more than you typically would get it in Scott Lynch's style of writing. And it's dis- it's pretty <laughs> disgusting. He's gross. So yeah. he's going around just the things he's thinking about the women. Well, he just, he complete, he has no regard for anybody. He's just, and you could see that in his behavior before you went in his perspective, but everybody is just a tool for his satisfaction. He's a sociopath. And it's interesting because we see Locke through this section begin to realize how much he underestimated Buladazi. You know, when he first met him, he just thought, this guy's just a ding dong. He's going to be easy to manage. And as he is coming around them more and more, Locke starts to realize, oh, no, wait, he might actually kind of be a threat to me. So and then we see this culminates in his attack on Janora. So Buladazi realizes he's not going to get Sabatha. He's drugged. He's probably past the state of inebriation to where he is follows Janora up to her room and she ends up having to stab him with a pair of scissors in order to defend herself. Locke and Sabatha having just consummated their their awkward teenage relationship. And okay, so I just loved that their first time was described as being awkward and underwhelming. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it it if it's the opposite of Quoth and Valorian. Valorian, right? I mean, He's she a wasn't a mortal sex, sex goddess. Okay, it's, you know, I mean, I don't know. That's how it was for me. Not the Valorian. Not the Valorian version, or the awkward and underwhelming. <laughs> Like, I think we could most agree. I think most people can agree with that, you know? And you immediately think, is this what everybody's like all up in arms about? Like, <laughs> like, and we just don't see that very often in fantasy novels. So it's refreshing. It is refreshing, yeah. Either way, it finally happens. And even though it's underwhelming, I think they're both still happy. They're in their little love shack and they're interrupted with the news that Buladazi's been stabbed with some scissors, so the gang's got to get back together. Yeah, and and he's not dead yet. So as we're reading through this interlude and all the stuff with Buladazi, all the stuff leading up to it, you know, I'm I'm interested in the stuff where they're talking about the play, but there's just it's just going on and on. It's a really long interlude, and I'm like, my God, would we? Can we get on with it? And then it ends with this whole thing with Boladazi, and I'm like, damn. Like, So there is a nice building of tension here. Yeah. In a way that reminds me of the first book in the series. I feel like the, the second book never quite got there for me. Yeah. But these couple of sections where we leave off with Patience about to reveal something about Locke that she claims to know, then to this section, and now we jump back at this point to patience telling Locke and Sabatha what Locke's true nature is. The big the big reveal. The big reveal. And holy crap, what did you think of this? It's a big goddamn reveal. So my first instinct is to say well, my first instinct was as you described earlier to be like holy shit, it's patience is his mother. So let me let me summarize it really quickly yeah, for yeah, yeah. listeners who maybe haven't read 
we this actually have some folks. <laughs> we do. So patience begins by telling Locke, there's a reason that you don't have any memories before the plague. And there's a reason that you only have one memory of your mother and it's of her profession. And she was a seamstress. And Locke goes, no. And that's when Chad said, she's his mother because her gray name was yeah. the seamstress. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's just a nice little Scott Lynch transition because that's how the section ends. And the next section starts with patients laughing and saying, you have jumped to the wrong conclusion. Yeah. I am not your mother. Yeah. She says, but you do remember me. So she tells him a story of this uber powerful mage that was her friend and mentor. And he was had a, a beautiful wife. They were very in love. And the wife died in a tragic accident. And he kind of went insane trying to bring her back. Now, this is one of the rules. We've talked about how the bonds mages don't seem to have a whole lot of rules yeah. or costs associated with their power. But this seems to be one of them. She says life recoils from necromancy. And so they're strictly forbidden from trying to bring people back from the dead. But this mage decides he's going to do this for his wife and he tries and he tries and he tries and he ends up being expelled from the order he flees to Kamor, and right before he dies there's an explode some sort of major magical happening happens they the mages go in they find his body and think that he's dead but then many years later they run across jean tannen who when being questioned by the mages, reveals that his best friend told them that his real name is Lamora Canthus, mm -hmm. which was this mage's name. Five syllables. That's right. So when she tells this to Locke, and he's like, she can't, she can't possibly have known that name. Oh my gosh, is this true? She basically tells him what you did, that, that he's a body snatcher that what Lamora Canthus did was to take his spirit and put it into a, the body of a poor orphan child. And that's why he can't remember anything before that, but he had fractured his personality. He could have picked a more able-bodied child. I mean, he I guess he was limited in what he had to work with. So, like, I don't know. I just thought it was such a cool twist. Not anything I expected no, from me reading. I thought, oh, maybe he's a mage or he's descended from a mage or something. Yeah, yeah. But And that's sort of what I had predicted as well, you know. And I think that's what you're kind of led to expect. I think that's also fairly typical, mm -hmm. a, a fairly typical trope within this genre. So I'm glad that Scott Lynch took it a different direction. You know, as much as I would have loved for my prediction to have been right, I'm glad he took it a different direction. Through this whole section, particularly the beginning of chapter nine, in my head, it's happening inside of a Mexican soap opera. <laughs> I know where you come from. You know, like it's just there were a lot of no, and he no falls to his knees. falling down and, you know, <laughs> overacting and, you know, and I made love to the gardener. You know, like, <laughs> like I, the, it's, that's sort of the the scene I have there, sort of set uh, in my head. Again, I I said that it was refreshing. I liked I I like that. There are some things that I don't quite get, you know, and I don't understand. 
first thing I had to wrestle with was, is patience actually telling the truth? Right. Right. Because there's always the idea that we don't know if we can really trust the Bonds mages, right? But I take it that she is telling the truth, and the critical piece of evidence for that to me is what's in the intersects. This, hey, there's more to this cat than you realize there's going to be a lot of news leading up to it. And then after the fact, the two other, you know, mages going, holy shit, I can't believe they found, you know, they found him. There's a couple, but, um, but there are some things that don't add up to me. I don't quite understand how the way I read it, the seamstress that Locke recalls is patience and that she erased his memory. But like it, it just, I, I don't know. That didn't quite make sense to me because I don't, I don't know. Like, I, why would she erase his she, memory? She never she just, claimed to have erased his memory. What she told him was that Lamora Canthus was experimenting on the poor and orphaned. Yeah. And he was working on trying to put a spirit into another body, yeah. I guess, to try and bring his wife back. Mm-hmm. But he managed to put his own spirit yeah. into this child's body and mm-hmm. as a result lost his memory. Oh, okay. All right. So his own personality fractured. Okay. All right. So, all right. I missed that. So the other part there is the bond, what the bonds mages know is they know that this guy went down there. They know he did these experiments pretty confident that the plague as a result of his experimentation, they know he died and they know that Locke Lamora uses that name. They don't know that his spirit actually went into Locke Lamora. They presume that they presume that to be true. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying I think we need to leave it out there as a possibility that they're wrong, that they. I agree. And I and I think we're meant to be left with the question, how much of Locke is Lamora Canthus and how much of him is the orphan boy? Was it some sort of melding of the two personalities? Yeah. I think we're, we're meant to, to wonder that. I, I do as well. And, and by the way, I tend to believe that the Bonds Mages are are correct. I do think that there was something. I think that it's far more Locke the Orphan than it is Lamora the Mage that we're dealing with. Uh, My prediction that I'll get to later sort of ties into why I do think that it did actually happen. But I think we need to leave the possibility that just because the Bonds Mages believe this is what happened doesn't mean that's what actually happened. I think you're absolutely right. And I think we're meant to wonder about that. And I think that patients, though, want him to believe this fully and, and wants, uh, whether to control him or just because she wants him to suffer, she lays this zinger on him. It would be one hell of a fuck you to somebody who crippled her son. It would. So this is what she says to him. You can open your eyes and accept that we've given you a chance to solve the mysteries of your past, perhaps even a chance to redeem yourself with a terrible crime, a crime whose first victim's stolen body you will wear like a mask until the day you die. Yeah. 
Like, damn. Well, and the other thing that is interesting to me, another part of the reason why I think narratively it does make sense, is because what is one of our first things that we find with Locke? We find him walking into, like, a bar and screaming plague. We find him causing the death of other orphans. And we, and then narratively we get this concept of the death offering, you know, and I'm just thinking how much of Locke's life and suffering is a death offering for all the misery that Lamoricanthus caused. Interesting. You know, that Bug, Callow, Galdo died. So many people around him died. Nazca died. Because that's all paying for and punishing Lamoricanthus for what happened. Very interesting. You know, we've talked a lot about whether Locke is somehow in good with the gods of this world or not. And this just puts an interesting twist on that. It does. And we also... We also have said that we think that the gods are real and actively involved. Then we've also seen this apparition from Bug that says they're not. Don't really know how to take that. We know that Locke Lamora seems to incredulously escape death all the time. Is that because he's being watched by the Crooked Warden? Or is he somehow subconsciously tapping into some sort of bonds mage powers that he doesn't realize he has. Some kind of weird wiki wiki. Yeah, right? I don't know. But those are things that we need to question. I think it's also not a small thing to consider that there's supposed to be seven books in this whole Gentleman Bastard sequence. And I just don't believe that Scott Lynch is going to not even at quite the midpoint of the series reveal this and that be the ultimate truth. There's got to be much more to this story. Otherwise, why are we going to have four more books? Right. right. We also don't know. There's somebody else who has a very mysterious background and that's Sabatha. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what Sabatha's background is, but I can't believe it's not going to somehow play into this. Mm-hmm. It's going to somehow play into it. Well, Impatience makes an offhanded comment to Sabatha, and it's hard to know if this was just to upset her, but she says, you see, I know why he's always dreamed of redheaded women. I do too. Do you? Yep. What is it? You ready for me to tell you? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, because it takes a sweet little bullet from a pretty blue gun to put those scarlet ribbons in your hair. (laughs) Okay. So... This is my theory mm-hmm. on why Locke at a young age saw the red hair and immediate, it immediately triggered something incredibly almost primal in him. Because, and this is also why I think that he is legitimately Lamoricanthus, because I think in that moment, he, a little bit of the memories and life and love of Lamoricanthus came back to him in his last vision of his wife with her busted skull and her hair covered in blood. Mm. So I think that's why like his last memory of his wife 
first time he sees Sabatha, he can't get over it. Hmm. Interesting. That's my prediction. So we have a brief little intersect here with the the old man and Arcadema Foresight, who have been speaking mind to mind in these intersects, and they've been spying on this conversation. They plan a coup on the night of the election. It's also revealed that the old man in the intersects is Cold Marrow. Which that we that we pretty much expected. So the last interlude that we're going to talk about is called Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's where we figure out what are we going to do with an almost dead baron? Well, he is. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah, he is almost dead at this point. Yeah. And, Nearly and, dead. And this. Not dead yet. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. I think I'll go for a walk. You could take the scissors out. <laughs> Getting better. I might live. <laughs> no, I don't think he's going to live. But where the first interlude was very, you know, long and rambling and lots of different things, this one is hyper-focused. And I like that because I feel like if this sort of thing happened to you, that's the way it would be. There would be nothing outside of this dead body would exist. We also see the gang snap back together. Yeah. All the angst, all the bickering, all the the teenage crap that's been going on out the window. It's become life or death now. Yeah. So they've got this almost dead Baron and Locke realizes, is the first to realize we're going to have to kill him. And he goes to do that but Sabatha, in, in true Amadine style, is like, hey, you can't strangle and stab him. We'll never be able to play that off as, as being an accident. Yeah. So she is the one to go over and just kind of drive the scissors deeper so that he is actually killed. And then she is able to very quickly dispel the fears of the bodyguard. And they kind of quickly come up with a plan that basically they're just going to stash him. And use him as a prop in the play until after the play is over. What? Then they're going to tie strings to his arms and make him wave. They're going to put sunglasses put a, on his face. Put him in a blue in wind, a windbreaker shirt. with a Hawaiian jacket underneath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my goodness. So one of the, th- the whole time I'm thinking there's got to be a better way. Now, one thing, like I'm, I'm thinking... Get this, like, just go dispose of the corpse. Like, he, you know, if if you don't have a corpse, you just have a missing person. You don't have a murder, right? So, like, it's nighttime. Sneak his ass out. You know, tie rocks to him and put his ass in the river. Like, what are you idiots doing? And that's what I'm thinking this whole time. Now, the thing about it is I don't know, like, I know that there's supposed to be, or I believe there's supposed to be, like, gates around the city. And so I, but I, I don't know. So I don't know enough to know if that's really a possibility. Well, there's also the issue that in this world, poor people don't get fair trials. No. They're not innocent until proven guilty. No. And here you have a lord who was last seen in this establishment Oh yeah, going yeah. upstairs. Well, and Sabatha didn't help it as much as I'm not blaming her. 
the guards knocking on the door, you got to do something. Right. But the moment she answers that door and is like, yeah, I'm fucking your boss. Right. Well, and and the guard knew he was up there. Like, yeah. there was not going to be any way that they were going to be like, oh, he left. He snuck past you. Like, he was known to have been there. For him to have disappeared, there was no way they were going to get out of it. I feel like they I feel like they could have found a way. But um but again, I don't know like I don't know enough about the situation to to be crit- to be overly critical of that. I ha- I have to assume that if they that that wasn't really a possibility for them. Well, what they've decided is that they're going to need to disguise the way that he was killed and so they decide they're going to stage a fire so that the body will be burned badly enough that they will not be able to tell what happened to him. But they can't really do this until after the play. The reason that they need to do the play is that they're in debt to yeah. the some of the performers and the, the set people and all of the people who have worked to put all of this on into the theater. They'll be jailed for debt if they do not actually do the play and make some money. Yeah. So it has to wait until after the next night. They're going to do the play. They're just going to stash the body. And once they make the money, then they'll go ahead and set something on fire and and make it look like Buladazi was killed there. And Locke and Sabatha, they've got this genius plan. They know what they're doing. They've thought it all through. These are the people who pulled off, you know, the thorn of Camor and the rose of the marble, whatever the hell, like, like these are people are geniuses, except there's one problem. This is their first major problem that they've had to deal with on their own. And they've forgotten one major component, which is all the money was being handled, handled by a third party. Correct. So we're left at the end of this interlude with how are they going to solve that? Yeah, still, still more problems that they haven't thought through yet. Still major problems. The thing I liked about this intersection, the thing that was most compelling to me about this, not intersection, uh, interlude, is this is one of the first times where I've really felt the weight of, of being a woman in this society and just how unequal it still is. Because we've talked a lot about through this series about how men and women often don't have the same degree of disparity that we see in our own society, that women can be fighters, women can be this. There's all these ways in which this world doesn't reflect a typical fantasy society. But now we see in this where that's not the case. And I think it's it's interesting, too, that everyone in the troupe is a marginalized person in some way. They can be famous actors. They can be, uh, you know, they can be business owners, but they're still debtors. They're still foreigners. They're still black people. They're still women. They're still, there's, they're all marginalized in some way. And despite being good people, will be 100% hung and destroyed because this asshole decided to try to rape somebody. And there's a very touching scene where they, the gentleman bastards and Janora call the troop together the morning after the murder and lay it out there. They basically lock the doors and say, guess what? Congratulations. Yeah. 
You're now you're complicit all part of this. in a murder. Yeah. <laughs> you're now complicit in a murder. Uh, this is how it's going to be. And we have to stick together. This is what we're going to do. And if you don't, we'll kill you too. We'll hide two bodies, basically, is what they say. And Mon Crane turns to Janora and says, you idiot, you should have just enjoyed it the best you could and let him go on his way. And we see the women in the group just like, like recoil. Mm -hmm. And um, Sylvanas turns around and punches him. So we see him standing up for him and being like, you asshole, you were ready to kill this guy because he wanted to buy your company and you felt like he didn't respect you. Like, what the hell is your problem? Your pride is worth more than this woman's safety and being sexually assaulted. Yeah, but it just shows that where we had earlier seen a more egalitarian society, particularly when it comes to gender roles, and where we had seen probably a more egalitarian society in race relationships in the first book, The Lies of Locke Lamora, more doesn't mean completely. Right. And they're tough on gingers. Yeah. That's for sure. There's a little bit of ginger stereotype going on in this book. So She's fiery. She, yeah. She she is quite quite literally the fiery redhead. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, I've really given you my prediction. Right. I don't really have any other predictions. Okay. At this time, uh you know, I for at first I was going to say that my prediction was that Lamora Canthus' wife was a redhead, and that still might be true. Right. But I'm going a darker route. I think I think it's I think it's the blood. So, what do you think about patients? One thing I thought was interesting was that when she's talking about the accident that killed Lamora Canthus's wife, she seems like she hesitates. She has a really hard time talking about that. And she gets very angry with Locke right after she talks about it, this accident. And it makes me wonder, you know, did is she was she part of it? Like, did she somehow cause that? I get the sense she was definitely there. Okay, and I'll make that my second prediction, mm-hmm. that she was there when the balcony collapsed. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would go so far at this point as to saying that she caused it mm-hmm. intentionally, accidentally, you know, don't know that. But she was definitely, she definitely witnessed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got, I mean, I definitely got the same sense that, you know, she was somehow involved in it. For sure. I thought it was interesting, too, that, like, I kept asking myself, why is she telling Locke this? But she expresses that it's my obligation. We are obligated to each other, no matter what, that we take care of each other. You are a bondsmage, as far as we are concerned. We are going to take care of you. So do you think she's being straight up with that or does she have some other motive? I definitely think she has some other motive. However, I would also say that that behavior is still not inconsistent with what we've seen them do in other instances. It's interesting because what she says, and, and I'm trying to remember what the name, 
what Lamora Canthus's name was before he went bad. It was some white flower, and then it became the black flower, well, Lamora. Well, it was, you know, white amaranth was his first yeah, yeah. name, and then Lamora Canthus means black amaranth. Yeah, yeah. Pell acanthus means there white amaranth, and that was what he called himself before he went all Dr. Dark. <laughs> but um, patient says at one point, Pell Acanthus was my friend. Lamore Acanthus was my shame. So it makes it clear that she somehow felt responsible for him turning. And when she sees Locke, she's reminded of that. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So, you know, we know that this bonds mage that Locke supposedly is was one of her closest friends. Does she still see him as that or is does she see him as an enemy? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, is is it is she going to try to bring him to justice? Is she going to try to make an example of him? Is she going to try to somehow reawaken his power to use for her own? It's still a lot we don't know. All right, so are you ready for some interactions? Yes, indeed. Outstanding. So NASA today had a major press conference. Did you hear about that? Oh, they had the press conference. What did they find? They went on to Mars and they were able to find a copy of the manuscript for a Winds of Winter. Oh, amazing. It's amazing. Finally. No, I actually haven't read it yet. I don't know. Oh, man. I, I meant to go on and find that out. So Chuck Spurlock on her Facebook group page put a hilarious video about female armor. <laughs> that was so funny. Where the actress is literally wearing a chainmail bikini. <laughs> so please go check that oh out. Oh my gosh. Oh, it pinches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. So Chuck Spurlock said, finally finished Gentleman Bastards book one on podcast number 39. Enjoying the recaps. Chuck, when you get here, glad to have you back. Welcome back, Chuck. Welcome back. So Theo Graham Brown found what a breach cloud is. He went on Google. It's a thing. It's, it's a real a thing. thing. It's a real thing. It's a loincloth. It's what it, we knew. Yeah, we knew that. But he found the evidence. Just in case you're feeling like this world is a little too like our world, they do not have underwear. <laughs> they have to wrap cotton parts around their privates. That's right. I don't get why you'd sneak into a guy's room wearing a breech clout. I mean, it seems very diapery. I don't seem like it. Like it's, it's going to be like, like sexy. Yeah, you know, yeah. Just take uh, everything uh, off at that point. I'm with you. I don't like it. Be, just don't just hang out in your breech clout. Yeah. Theo also says the black Stanley Tucci is obviously Lance Reddick. I I was so happy to see that. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely true. He highlighted that. Um, we talked about the character Boner from, oh, what's that show? Uh, that dumb show with... Growing Pains. Growing Pains, thank you. And he says, uh, we have the same thing here when we watch The Expanse, because in the UK, the word belter is used interchangeably with the word fucking idiot. So I thought that was interesting. Not one we would have picked We would have picked up on. I have started saying belter now. Yeah, as you should. As Very you helpful should. when driving with the kids. <laughs> so Melinda Ferriot on the Facebook page says she would like to see us read Ray Bradbury or Margaret Atwood 
Justin Cronin. So some ideas. We've got a lot of uh, other ideas. Folks that have consistently given us some suggestions, and we like your suggestions. I have to tell you, we have made our decision for what we are going to read next. It's a good one. And we will announce it on the next podcast. I believe that also Theo made a very interesting prediction. And if you are not a member of our Facebook group page, it's different from our Facebook page. It's a closed group. And Theo every week always posts a bunch of predictions of his own and makes some really good points. He does. And he came up with something this week that I thought was very interesting that I wanted to highlight. He says that he thinks that Locke maybe has one or two memories from Lamora Canthus, but that he is not actually the mage himself. That's kind of the way I feel about it too. I agree with that. That's, I, I do f- feel like there's something there in the same way that I feel like some memories or things of that nature are tied to it. But I, I don't think that this person is in his soul this bonds mage and i think that Locke at some point is going to have to choose or face that kind of dual nature the parts of himself that are the mage and there that's going to be there's going to be some kind of crisis there with yeah, that yeah that's good that's good i like that so on twitter ian james crone said critters the fans of critical role are the juggalos of fantasy there you go i like it he also says uh as far as sabbath and her red hair Red hair was associated with prostitutes in Italian, during the Italian Renaissance. Uh, red hair has historically been very negative, and that is absolutely true. Nobody likes the Irish. I know, right? The other thing we found in talking with a bunch of a bunch of listeners is that from book to Kindle edition to Nook edition, it appears like the book gets chopped up differently from edition to edition to edition. Very interesting. We've heard about some word differences. Yeah, and I think your physical book has the part three in a different place than my Nook edition does, which is why we had some confusion on where the last episode was going to end. And I found it interesting. Trying, I have been trying since we when we started this series to find hardcover editions of these books because I'm reading them now in these little paperbacks. And then I was even looking for like the larger sized paperbacks and I could not find them. So I feel like the hardcovers were probably very limited and they're hard to find now. So when Thorn of Emberlane comes out, buying that sucker in hardcover, pre-ordering it. Good to know. So we have a new review on iTunes. Nice. And it's a five-star review, and it says, I love these guys. So much fun, plus lots of great ins- insights. When are you guys going to cover Tad Williams? And that I is from, love Tad Williams. Yeah, and that is from, well, listen next week, and you'll find out. <laughs> that is from Dr. Funkenstein. Nice. We love to funk you, Funkenstein. <laughs> Your funk is the best. All right. So if you like us and like our podcast you too can leave us a review on itunes we love those we love those you know what we also love word of mouth just telling people just tell letting your mom people know about, about us. it yeah tell tell your friends at the water cooler you know that's all we ask tell everybody on facebook what you're doing they already know what a big nerd you are 
You don't have to be worried that they're going to find out. Yeah. Everybody knows. Cool your jets, man. Ain't no secret nerds here. (laughs) Not reading books in the bushes. Reading books in the bushes. No, not happening. So, do you have anything else? Nope. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. And they plan a coop. Please edit that out. I just said coop. <laughs> they plan to have a small car together? I hate you. <laughs> Come on, I said interlube. <laughs> that was funny. There's like a, no, you, you. a sexual... Uh, aspect to that this is a house for chickens (laughs) we're a very small car